Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, two guys, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5. Last sermon in James. Finally, you can take a break from having to be more like Jesus. This, this book is tough. It is, it is hard. I'm being facetious, obviously, up here. James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 13 through 20 as we finish off our sermon series and get ready for our Easter season starting next Sunday, Palm Sunday. Well, there's two guys that were talking to each other about theology, scripture, and the Bible, and, and they were just going back and forth on the character of God and their soteriology and verses of scripture and quoting back and forth. And finally, one of the guys looks over to his buddy and, and he just stares him right in the face and he says, man, you are crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what verses you're even going to. All the theology that you're telling me right now, I don't even know if that is true. I bet you, I got $10 in my pocket. I bet you right now, if you wanted to quote the Lord's Prayer, you couldn't even do it. The guy was like, all right, I'll take that bet. Thought about it for a second or two, and he spouted out. Now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. The other guy starts shaking his head. He's, he's laughing hysterically. Reaches in his wallet, pulls the $10 out of his pocket and says, man, I thought for sure you didn't know the Lord's Prayer. Here's your $10. Talk about prayer this morning. C.S. Lewis had a, a great book. It's called The Hideous Strength. and describes one of his characters, Jane Studdock as one who had thought of religion as this great cloud of incense streaming up from especially gifted souls to receptive heaven. Prayer, thought of as, as incense from especially receptive souls, gifted, going up into heaven. And suddenly her idea, Lewis writes, of religion was shattered when she personally experienced not her going up to God, But listen to this, and I quote, God's skillful hands thrust down to make and mend, and she felt herself in the presence of a person, something expectant, patient, inexorable, met her with no veil or no no protection in between. Her life was completely changed by the intimacy of prayer. If you're just joining us for the last 10 weeks or so, we've been looking at this letter of James in the New Testament. And we've seen many things as we've gone through this. We've seen that although that this book was written 2,000 years ago, it still remains today relevant, relatable, and razor sharp. James is nipping at our heels the whole way. The verse that we keep coming back to throughout the series is James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Not only was this a main theme for James, but it was also a structural verse that took us all through the content of this letter. So from James 1:21 through the end of chapter 2, he talks about being people, being Christians, who are quick to hear, who listen to the Word of God. In James chapter 3, he talks about speaking and the power of the tongue. In James 4, 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, 
He talks about being slow to anger. And I started out by saying this the very first sermon as we introduced this loaded letter for Christians, that before you take the next step of that post on Instagram, that opinion on Facebook, or that loaded text to a coworker or a friend, stop and read James 1.19. Put it on your mirror, put it on the dash of your car, let this verse saturate your mind and your thinking. We are living in a culture that is not quick to hear and slow to speak. They are slow to hear and quick to speak. Opinions are plentiful. Honesty and integrity are given away every single day in every way. And so finally now, James ends this no-nonsense, non-negotiable letter for Christians with a call to key characteristics on what it means to have authentic faith. The first one we talked about last week was patience. And here's what we said about patience. Patience is the willingness to suffer uncomfortable things in order for good things to happen in your life, in your relationships. We just sang a, a song about all of my life, you have been, thank, been faithful, you are such a good, good God. But sometimes it takes a whole lot of patience on our end to experience that, right? We talked about how Patience should lead, or lead us to being mature Christians. And there's a divine irony concerning patience. Because all of us at some point in time in our lives feel like we're the ones waiting on God, when in reality, God is the one who's waiting on us. He's waiting on us in our hearts to be transformed more and more into his image. This week, the second item as he wraps up this, this great and this loaded letter is prayer for the authentic Christian. We're going to talk a lot about prayer this morning, and prayer is so important for James as he ends this letter. From verses 13 all the way through 18, every single verse has at least one specific mention of prayer in it. Are you sick? Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. Need to be delivered from something? Pray. You need to confess some sins? Pray. Remember Elijah? He prayed. But I want you to notice something about the New Testament when it talks about prayer. The New Testament prayers are, even really throughout the Bible, the format, the style, the content of those prayers, it's just different than our prayers, is it not? Let me just show you one example of this, Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having your eyes and your hearts enlightened having the eyes of your heart enlightened, excuse me, that you might know what is the hope of which he has called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Is that prayer a little different than, guys, my mom's up in Wisconsin. She's really struggling with this sickness right now. Can you just pray for her? My, my brother's uncle's son just got this diagnosis and is going through this really hard time. Is this the content of this prayer? Is it a little bit different than what you're used to sharing? maybe even praying about in small groups and Bible studies. And listen, I'm not saying don't pray for those things. Actually, at those, those times in life when we're going through ailments or diagnoses, it's a great time to reach out to the Lord in prayer. We have to do that. We need him so desperately, and we're reminded of that when we run into those situations. But Paul prayed here for the truth to penetrate and to grip people so deeply that their hearts would be enlightened and changed. He prayed for hope. He prayed for a greater knowledge of who God is. 
And this is characteristic of the Apostle Paul all the way through the New Testament. Rarely will anybody in the New Testament pray for a circumstance to change. Why is that? Because prayer is not merely a way to get things from God, but the way to get more of God himself. Prayer is not merely a way to get things from God, but the way to get more of God himself. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7 says, There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Prayer is taking hold of God personally, persistently, and powerfully. The great Scottish reformer John Knox defined prayer very simply. He said, prayer is an earnest and familiar talking with God. John Calvin built on that. He says, prayer is an intimate conversation between believers and God, a communion between mankind and God that is a two-way interaction. And I love this definition of prayer from the Westminster Confession, number 98, shorter catechism. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Understanding what prayer is, how it functions in the life of believers, will draw us deeper into a personal relationship with Christ on a daily basis. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. J.I. Packer reminds us in his classic Knowing God, men who know their God are before anything else men who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory comes to expression is in their prayers. Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Prayer is more about changing your heart than your circumstance. Prayer is more about changing your heart, my heart, than your circumstance and my circumstances. Look down at verse 13. Let's read through verse 15. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James provided very specific times and situations in which we should pray. And the first two are what's called a merism. It's a synecdoche, a device where you're comparing two things on opposite sides of the spectrum that communicate an overall whole, a big picture of what James is trying to communicate. Whether you are suffering on one side of the spectrum or whether you are happy and cheerful on the other, there is never a time not to pray. We need to remain in a posture of prayer. And to be fair here, James isn't calling us to pray specifically during times of cheerfulness and joy. He's calling us to sing praises to God. Literally, verse 13. Does anyone among you cheerfully literally play a harp or sing a psalm? That's the Greek word for psalm when you read that. But broadly, we consider both as acts of prayer. Whether it's prayer literally or, or singing praises to God, all of them hinge and get us to a closer definition of what prayer really is. Generally, Speaking, here's the first thing we're going to say. Prayer is an act of worship between a person and God. Prayer is, an, generally and broadly speaking, an act of worship. Now, worship 
is recognizing and responding appropriately to the greatness of God and the revelation of who He is. Worship is recognizing and responding appropriately to the character of God and the revelation of who He is. Prayer as worship, then, becomes personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And that word response here, as it's involved in prayer, is a key, key word to understand it. What this means is that our prayers are drastically impacted by what we know about God, our knowledge of who He is, what He's doing in the world, whether it's East Asia, across, halfway across the world, or right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our prayers are drastically impacted by what we know about God. Let me give you an example. Nehemiah chapter 1, one of the greatest books on prayer in all of the Bible. If you study through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find several of them. He cries out to God and he says, O Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Nehemiah begins his prayer, he saturates his prayer with the character of God because he knows that he is sovereign, he is over all things. He is a God who keeps his promises, he is a God who shows grace and mercy to the least deserving, and he always will show that. The principle behind prayer is that knowing God deeper should lead to communicating with God better. Knowing God deeper should lead to communicating with God better. Prayer is a, it's a response, it's a responding to God. But that also necessarily means that prayer is examining our own hearts. As we respond to God, we reflect within and we pour out to him the things that are in there and the things that we need to deal with. Christians who know God understand that he can change all of the things that are listed in James chapter 5. You're suffering, God can change that, just like that. He's the great physician. He took the greatest ailment, the greatest disease we could ever imagine or get inflicted with, the disease of sin, and he cured it just like that on the cross of Jesus. Are you suffering? He can take that suffering away if he wants to do it in a heartbeat. If you know God, you know that if you're joyful and cheerful, he can continue to put you in that situation where you are continually joyful and cheerful. He can heal the sick. Knowing God tells you that he can do all those things, but knowing God also tells you that he might not. He might not do it on your timetable, on my timetable. He might not do it ever on this side of glory. His ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Remember when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane? Probably the, one of the most powerful prayers that's ever given for us in Scripture. Father, take this cup from me. I want this suffering to change. I don't want to go through the circumstance. But if that's not your will, let your will be done. He wanted something from the Father, but not as much as he wanted the Father himself. He wanted the benefits of God, but not as much as he wanted God himself, the Father himself. What that means is prayer is not as much about getting as it is about aligning. Prayer is not as much about our wants as it is about God's ways. 
It's not us changing God's mind as it is God changing our hearts. When we approach God in that way in prayer, prayer then becomes more about intimacy than self-fulfillment, more about self-awareness than self-satisfaction. In all cases, no matter what it seems like, when we approach God in prayer, God is the initiator. We would never go to God unless God first came to us through his Holy Spirit. He reaches out to us, otherwise we would never reach out to him. All prayer, then, is responding appropriately to the character of God. I want you to see this in these verses, because this gets into some interesting stuff in the New Testament. Are your elders praying in this way? In James chapter 5, have you ever experienced, have you ever been sick and called upon the elders to come and pray over you and anoint you with oil? Just look down at verse 13 again. Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Ask you a couple questions. Does verse 13 promise that if you pray in this way, your suffering and your sickness will be healed and stopped? Does verse 13 promise that if you are cheerful and you pray, God will keep you cheerful, and he will always maintain that joyfulness. The closest thing that we can come to a change in circumstance here is, is when the elders are praying for the sick. And there's a promise here that we can take as an ironclad promise from God. But let me still ask you more questions. Is the sickness in verse 14 physical sickness or spiritual sickness? Verse 15, does salvation and deliverance, the healing from that, does that happen immediately or does it happen over time or does it happen at the end when everybody will be healed in glory when our bodies are made perfect and redeemed? Verse 14 and 15 are a specific process for the spiritual leaders in your church, elders, to pray for those who are sick. It doesn't say how long to pray, how many times to pray, how many elders doesn't say how to anoint with oil. James isn't giving us a magic wand, a magic word, or a magic way. He's telling us to pray as a community. He's telling us that leaders in your church, elders, are specifically given a responsibility to pray for the sick and do so in a very personal way. I love what uh, one of my favorite pastors, how he puts it. He says, the power of our prayers then lies not primarily in our effort and striving or any technique, but rather in the knowledge of God. The power of our prayers then lies not primarily in our effort and striving or any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. And if that's true, a change of the heart is more important than a change of circumstances every single time. And it naturally follows number two, Honest confession should be more apparent. Change of heart is more important. Honest confession should be more apparent in our prayers. Look down at verse 16. I, I hope you guys know I just totally punted on verse 14 and 15 up here. Just telling you what's not said. And there's a lot that we don't know. There's a, some people like to take one verse in the New Testament and just stretch it for everything it's worth and try to build a whole doctrine and practice out of it. Just be careful. 
If it's that clear, if it's that specific, there'll be other places in the New Testament that address it. You can build a doctrine off more than one little verse. But there are things that we can take. Number two is honest confession. Look down at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You might make a reference to the two one another's there. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, ESV says. In his book, Reason for God, Tim Keller wrote that our culture is becoming more and more secular, more and more godless, and any claim to an exclusive religion or an exclusive way to get to God is seen as um, arrogant. It's, it's not something that's looked highly upon in our culture, and we typically follow one of three tactics in the world when people make claims of an exclusive religion, or you know that your way leads to God, but nobody else does. Uh, the three ways, the three things are this. When you, when you deal with this in a secular culture, you're going to make an effort to do one of three things. Outlaw religion, condemn religion, or radically privatize it. Claims of exclusivity of Christianity are handled in a secular culture by either outlawing religion, condemning religion, or radically privatizing it. You guys know probably pretty well about how outlawing religion goes. It happens in places like Russia and communist China. And actually their hope is that there would be less oppression and more freedom when you outlaw religion, but you see through history and through other cultures that the exact opposite is true. It's more oppression. It's less freedom when you try to outlaw religion. Number two, the secular culture tries to condemn religion. Listen, all religions are the same. All of them lead to the same place. We're all trying to love people, treat people nicely, and if we're good people, hopefully we've done good in our life. How can you arrogantly say that Christianity is the one way to God? How prideful and arrogant can you be? And so they condemn religion. But the third way to do away with religion and exclusive claims of Christianity is to radically privatize it, to make it more about, oh, that's what Derek believes. But that's not what Jared believes. And let Derek believe what he's going to believe. And the reasoning goes something like this. Religious-based positions are seen as sectarian and controversial, while secular reasoning is seen as more universal and available to all. And so if you have religious beliefs, you need to keep them private. Certainly don't put them into the public square in discussions. That reasoning from the secular culture bleeds into the community. It's ble it bleeds into the church at times. How we deal with sin is influenced by people telling us to keep our Christianity to ourselves and to stay private about things in your spiritual life and your relationship with God. As a result, communities are not eager to confess sins. It's not on our top 10 list things of we, what we most want to do in life is to tell everybody where we're failing and sinning in life and put that before those who are closest to us. It's interesting that in this context of confession and prayer, James says two times. This whole passage is in the context of community. James is not talking to Dave Sargent individually here. He's talking to Tulsa Bible Church. He's talking to the community of faith, the churches that were existing at that time in his sphere of influence that he writes to. He's talking that 
prayer, confessional prayer, should not be a privatized individual matter. It should be something that saturates and is involved with the entire community of faith, at least other believers in Christ that you are closest to. And two times in verse 16, he uses the phrase one another, confess to one another, pray for one another. It's not a private religion. Christianity is not a personal and private relationship with God. It's something that influences your friendships, your communities. That when you are a Christian, you are ipso facto part of a larger community, of a local church, and also a bigger universal church of all true believers who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Gather together to worship, baptism, take the Lord's Supper, and follow God's will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, has a great understanding of confession in the context of the community. I want to read this. is a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. Bonhoeffer says, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. In confession, a breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Bonhoeffer says that sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. He continues, In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought out into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoke of and acknowledged. And that is, all that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks the gates of brass and the bars of iron. That's a quotation from Psalm 107, verse 16. Prayer is a community effort just as much as it's an individual effort. And as we gather together for prayer, part of that is confessing, confessing of our sins, not just the acknowledgement of God and his character. Number one, a change of heart is more important than a change of circumstance. Number two, confessing is more powerful than concealing. Confessing is more powerful than concealing. Number three in your outline, I just want to touch on this really quick. Um, get my slides right here. Constant prayer is the most effective. And I want to talk too much about this because we're coming to the end of James and I want to leave time to get through all these verses. Look down at verse 17. As James often does, he gives us some Old Testament examples, and he talks here about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. The same prayer, three years, six months, prayed fervently for it. Then he prayed again, Heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Constant prayer. Jesus will say something like this in the Gospels. Wear a judge out the way that you want to wear God out with your prayers. If you keep asking, if you keep pestering, if you keep saying those prayers long enough, and you keep going over and over again toward it, that constancy, that fervency in prayer is honoring to God. He loves it to hear the same prayers and the same things 
over and over again from his people. Constant prayer is the most effective. But I want to leave time here for these last two verses in James in order to summarize this book that we've been talking about. James not only closes with patience and prayer, but he also reminds us of his purpose for writing. James, when we understand these last couple verses in chapter 5, it's the same way in the Gospel of John. When you get to chapter 20, 21, you understand what his purpose is for recording all the miracles in the life of Christ. It was that people would believe in his name. They would come to know him personally. James saves, saves, saves his purpose for those last two verses in chapter 5. In verse 19 and 20, here's what it says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James addressed several instances of believers wandering from the truth. And specifically, in three ways, they wandered more than other ways. Number one, they weren't quick to hear. Instead, they were quick to speak. The first way that we wander from the truth as Christians is when we fail to listen to God, when we fail to put into practice his word, when we become hearers who delude themselves, just listening to the word but not doing the word. We read and examine our own hearts when we listen to God and read Scripture. One who is quick to listen will not treat others with partiality. One who is quick to listen will judge rightly, show justice, lives by a mantra that mercy always triumphs over judgment. What James is telling us here in, in this purpose is don't wander from the truth by listening to this sermon and thinking, that was a really good sermon for Phil Palmer. That was a really good sermon for my brother, my sister, my uncle, my aunt. I'm going to send this one to that person instead. No, listen to that sermon, read that scripture, and think first about yourself. Look into your heart. What are the things that God is dealing with you on before you think about everybody else? Be somebody who is quick to listen. The other way we wander from the truth is when we are quick to speak instead of being slow to speak. And so we said, taste your words before you spit them out. God gave us two ears and one mouth, and so we need to use those things proportionately. We have wonderful, wonderful people in this church who you would never know it because they rarely speak up. But when they do, you perk your ears and you listen because truth is coming from their mouths. Brandy was just sharing to me at, uh, not too long ago in one of the women's Bible studies. Carol Witte. I think I've heard Carol, I think I've heard you say like three words in your entire life. Brandy is saying, when Carol speaks, people listen. There is truth coming from her mouth. Our men's study, is, Phil was there the other day. I was, Phil won't say a whole lot to you. He's one of these guys that is under the radar. But when he speaks, there is truth, powerful truth that is coming from his mouth. And so we are slow to speak. Doesn't mean we don't speak, it means that we align the things we say with the wisdom of God. It means we check our words before we give them. We are people who are quick to listen and slow to speak, as not to wander from the truth. The third way that people wander from the truth is that they are quick to anger. 
instead of being slow to anger. And what we said is that sometimes people get angry at the wrong things and don't get angry at the right things, right? Sometimes our anger just needs to be realigned to the things that God is angry about, the injustices that God is angry about. But here's what, here's what James is doing. He's telling us all as Christians, if you want to pursue authenticity, if you want to be a genuine Christian in a fallen world that is full of suffering, darkness, disease, and all kinds of chaos, it's the same in the first century as it, was, as it is today, only I think today it's getting a little bit worse as time progresses. You want to be a person of authenticity, you want to have an authentic faith, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. And listen, if, if, you, if you go on social media today, if you uh, research this and just put authenticity into Google, you'll probably have over 100 million hits on that because authenticity is a buzzword today, is it not? We don't care about if you're right or wrong, we just want you to be authentic. I don't care about if you do this to me or to do that to me, just be it. Present, present yourself as a genuine person. We are obsessed with being true to ourselves, with being authentic and not fake. We tell our children to follow their dreams, to pursue their passions, find a job that helps you to be true to yourself. Be an authentic person in that way. We can think of nothing worse than a person who is who's not authentic, who isn't genuine, somebody who betrays their feelings in order to save face in a conversation or they're at the table. And despite this obsession with authenticity, we are losing our grip on truth in this culture if we haven't already totally lost it. Now, I find it very interesting, as James has just fleshed out, talking about all this authenticity, he combines that at the end with this appeal for truth, right? He's almost saying that authentic Christians and authenticity should align completely and totally 100% with what is true and what truth is. We don't know what truth is anymore. We don't know where to find truth. Every single form of authority in our culture today is being questioned and condemned. There's no shared epistemology. How do you know what you know is true? Nobody can even agree on that in our culture. The result is we are no longer a culture that has any shared framework of meaning whatsoever. It used to be that the institutions of society could establish some kind of standard, some measure of truth. It's not true anymore today. Today we are, we are more doubting and untrustworthy of people than we have ever been in the history of the world right here. Where do we land as a culture? If you can't provide me with a standard of truth that's outside of myself, guess where I'm going to look for that truth now? Inside. If it feels true to me, it is true. doesn't matter what Brad thinks about it. doesn't matter what Debbie thinks about it. My truth is my truth. Don't step on me with your truth. We look to personal feelings, subjective moods. We look to opinions. We look to sinful desires as a source of truth. And folks, to be a culture that talks so adamantly about authenticity and at the same time so destructively about truth, well, that is inconsistent at best and a contradiction of terms at worst. 
How can you care so much about authenticity if there's nothing to measure it against? How can you talk so much about what's genuine and sincere if you don't have that original to go back to? If you don't know what that is in the very first place? Ultimately, being authentic to ourselves might make you feel good in the end, but it will also destroy a society and destroy a culture and destroy everybody's best interest at the very same time. What are you left with? And that day in Israel, there was no king, and everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. Chaos, destruction, warfare, all kinds of craziness in the world around us. Authenticity is not a suitable replacement for truth. Authenticity is not a suitable replacement for truth. You need truth if you want authenticity. And here's what James says. I want you to be authentic Christians because we have something that is true. Truth is not a philosophy, it's not a principle. Truth is actually ultimately found in a person. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. James tells us to pursue truth and pursue authenticity as you pursue the standard as you walk a life that is modeled by, characteristic of, exemplified by Jesus Christ. His word is truth. His word is the standard measure. You want to be an authentic Christian that is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? I'm going to give you the prime example. It's Jesus if you can live in your life in a way that authentically and genuinely follows after him, you are an authentic Christian. You are genuine. Apart from him, enjoy life while you got it. Here today, gone tomorrow. Folks, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, don't post anything on Facebook. If you have no standard of truth, don't say anything about what's right and wrong. It doesn't really matter. And you, in fact, should be one of the hopeless people on the face of the earth because life has no meaning for you. James, over and over again, he says this. There is a judge. There is a judgment day coming. There is truth, and you will have to answer to it. That truth came and died on a cross for you. Because guess what? My life, your life, James' life, the apostles' life, nobody's life measures up to that perfect standard. And so here's what we need to do. We need to get aligned with truth by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He shows us grace, forgiveness. He shows us mercy over judgment. He died on Calvary's cross forgiving our sins with the payment of his blood so that we too can be followers of Christ and have everlasting life and be authentic Christians. Don't leave this morning thinking that you can be an authentic person, an authentic Christian without knowing Jesus personally. If you'd like to talk about that after the service, we're going to have some elders up under the screen and we would love to discuss it with you. Folks, take off your steel-toed boots for one week. 
and come back next Sunday and put them back on because we're just going to keep on stepping on them. All right. That's it for James. Uh, next week, we're going to go with Palm Sunday and we're going to go with Easter after that. And I want you to encourage you to come back for some of our services. I'm going to pray all of our services if you can. I'm going to pray and we've got a video to show you in just one second so you guys stay where you are. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Um, thank you for this loaded book of James. Thank you so much for the, the truth that you've given to us through his writing and through God's word. Lord, I pray that we would pursue authentic Christian lives that are aligned first and foremost with Jesus. He's the perfect standard for us. Help us to be authentic and genuine in our walk with you. Help us to be those who align ourselves not only with a person, but also with the truth of his word, what he has said for us. Help us to be those who are, are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We ask all of this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.